Welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm Mark Brumley. I hope you enjoy the discussion in this episode. For more information about Ignatius Press, check out our website at ignatius.com. Welcome to Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm Mark Brumley, and I'm here today with Carl Olson, the editor of Catholic World Report. Communion is a word most Catholics know. Usually we think of it in terms of the Eucharist, Holy Communion. Communio is a term most Catholics know less well, if at all. And yet the word communio is the word from which our word communion comes. It is at the heart of the mystery of God and at the heart of the mystery of the church. It's also a term used to describe a certain group of Catholic theologians and their approach to theology. And for our purposes today, Comunio refers to a theological journal associated with those theologians and their approach. That journal, founded 1973, marks its 50th anniversary this year. I guess that would be 1972. (laughs) That's right, 1972. To celebrate that anniversary, St. Bernard's School of Theology and Ministry in Rochester, New York, is hosting a sort of massive birthday party of sorts, a conference with some of today's leading communio theologians and thinkers. And to discuss this birthday bash, we have several of the conference organizers, Lisa Lacona, Daniel Drain, and Matthew Cooner from St. Bernard's. Welcome, everyone. Glad to have you aboard. After my uh, lengthy introduction, Carl, I thought it, I'd shut up for a little bit and let you grill our guests. <laughs> well, hopefully my connection here is going to stay stay well, stay good. Uh, it's great to be with you guys. Um, the Comunio Resource Theologians really had a, a great impact on me and my journey to becoming a Catholic, entering the Catholic Church. And um, but, but like Mark said, a lot of people don't have a really good idea about what communio is. So maybe uh, a couple of you or all of you could talk a little bit about the communio movement, the journal, and why, what, you know, really what it is sought to do. We can dig into that a little bit deeper, some of the specifics, but what has been the general purpose of the communio journal and movement over these last uh, five decades? That's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for having us, uh, Mark and Carl. It's a real gift to be here as we begin. And and we're sort of in the advanced stages of planning this birthday bash. And so if everyone could say a prayer that it goes well um, and that the cake arrives on time, et cetera, et cetera, that would be lovely. Um, But, you know, to your question, and I think we all have different answers. So I'll I'll sort of try to keep it sort of contracted uh, from from my own piece. but, you know, one of the things that, that really, really comes out in some of the founding documents, and, and that's what I would recommend at the outset, is for anyone that wants to learn a little bit more about the sort of communio approach to theology, but then also the journal itself founded in 1972, principally by Hans Urs von Balthasar, Henri de Lubac, and Joseph Ratzinger, among uh, many others, uh, is, is really sort of take a look at those founding documents, uh, Ratzinger has an article on the founding of Communio. Balthazar has an article on the founding of Communio. And then uh, Balthazar also has a mission document that he wrote some years later, which are really lovely. And a lot of those are collected in the fall 1992 edition of the Communio Journal, the English language edition. Um, 
but you know, if I could, I, I just wanted to read maybe the, the sort of, again, the condensed identification of the mission of Communio. And this is Balthazar writing in 78, 79. Uh, and, and here's what he says. He says, Communio intends, firstly, negatively, to fight at all costs against the deadly polarization brought on by the fervor displayed by traditionalists and modernists alike. And then positively, to perceive of the church as a central communio, a community that originated from communion with Christ, who presented himself as a gift to the church, as a communio that will enable us to share our hearts, thoughts, and blessings. And I really love, maybe just to dwell with that first point for a second, is this notion that that the true communio of the church uh, actually transcends polarization, right? The polarization of political categories. So I think there, there really is an attempt to sort of recover the church as something that is gifted to us, that is a whole, that is a greater, something greater than ourselves, and even that is transpolitical in terms of our categories. So the language of, of the sort of tendencies of modernism, the tendencies of traditionalism, both don't do true justice to the uh, multiplicity in unity of the body of Christ, uh, but also to the very contours of the deposit of faith itself. And so really when we think about communion as an approach to theology, there's always an approach of returning to the source. And that source is precisely the gift that's given in the person of Jesus Christ, but the very gift of the Father's heart. I, I mean, in that sense, the gift of Trinitarian communion. So let, let me just, I'll stop there though, pass it off. Good to hear from others. Any comments on that? I mean, you can correct Matthew if you like. Your <laughs> I'll take that up. <laughs> I won't correct you, but I that was a that was a great, beautiful answer, Matthew. Um, that's such a beautiful question that you're posing to us about about communio, and I loved what you were saying at the beginning, Mark, about about this being a term that a lot of it, it may even sound a little foreign to some Catholics, um, even today, even though it's been become very much part of the parlance of theology, especially since the Second Vatican Council. Um, and I suppose I would only add there that um, a couple of points. One is that um, the journal Communio was born 50 years ago, um, really as a friendship a communion between um, some really important figures. I mean, these are people that we do know through um, through your work at Ignatius Press, um, thanks be to God, um, and and in particular Hansers von Balthasar, Henri de Lubac, and um, Pope Benedict the Sixteenth, Joseph Ratzinger, and um, and what these and and you know we might we could add a lot of names to that. Actually, there were a lot of other people involved in the in the founding of Communion, and, and maybe we would even add. Pope John Paul II is someone who wasn't directly related to the journal, but who is very much attached to, or I would say related to this school of theology. Um, and the Comunio approach really was, or, or Comunio arose out of this desire to really enter deeply into what was being proposed at the Second Vatican Council, which is that the church um, in this moment in history had to come to a deeper understanding of her relationship to the world. How can we really um, you, you know, draw all men into uh, unity, which is Christ's prayer, of course, for all of us. Um, so if we want to think about the concept of communio, I think one way to think about it is um, the unity that God himself is, right? God is a is one and three. He's triune. That, that life of love, which is God's own life, is something in which we as a church, 
are meant to propose to the world. So we're sent out on, on mission. And the beauty of the journal, I think, was to really want to the desire to grapple with this in all its dimensions. You know, what does it mean for um, the church to turn toward the world? But with this desire, like you were saying, Matthew, which was so beautiful, um, beginning first from the person of Jesus Christ is a revelation of the Trinity. So there's this way of bringing, bringing, you know, theology and life together in the, in the pages of Comunio that is, um, there's a, you know, impacted a lot of us. And I think the journal itself has impacted so many people. Maybe they don't even realize it because they are followers in some way of, of the writings of, of Ratzinger, De Labac or Balthazar, or any of these figures. Um, and perhaps without even knowing their role in founding this journal. Very good. Well, Daniel, now you are in the uh, interesting position of being able to correct both Matthew and Lisa. No, so. in fact, I think I can only say something lame following after them, which is the usual order here. Uh, I actually, I think I'd like to to come back to the idea that that Comunio um, comes out of the Second Vatican Council in some sense, and okay. I don't want to overreach with historical claims there, but. If I might read just a selection from uh, another text from Hansers von Balthasar, but this is his Raising the Bastions, which was his sort of uh, firebrand text from 1952 that many were upset That's about right. and saw as prophetic with respect to the council. And I want to link that to, um, to the aims of the council, and I'll, I'll do that in a moment. But let me just read this passage, because I think, um, I think this younger Balthasar in 1952 is reflected quite well in those mission documents that, that Matthew read from. So Balthazar says this, there are two means of retaining or renewing the vitality of a historical construction for the present and the future. The first is violent and comes from outside, namely the destruction of the tradition, of the monuments and libraries, the archives and administrative bodies, perhaps the dissolution of the historical memory for generations, and consequently the necessity to begin afresh with a tabula rasa. The second is intellectual and comes from within, namely the power of transcending. This is the vitality that is the lifeblood of all traditions, the vitality that knows the past and yet is able to separate itself from the past to the extent that this is required by responsibility and readiness for the future. Both means can be grace. The second, a radiant grace. The first, a harsh grace. And then just to skip ahead a little bit in this, in this section. The, the second demanding difficult path is that of transcendence from within. In contrast to the spiritually explosive power of bombs, this second way contributes the spiritually explosive power of holiness, which is always something more than the wisdom of the tradition. It is the presence of the Holy Spirit for us in today's age, which, I mean, I think that can just be sort of mic dropped in some sense, but let me link, <laughs> it, with, let me link it with John the 23rd in his opening address to the council. This is where he's describing in particular the fresh approach, the sort of opening of the windows, the adjournamento of the council. He writes, there was no need to call a council merely to hold discussions of that nature, of, of uh, dogmatic nature. What is needed at the present time is a new enthusiasm, a new joy and serenity of mind in the unreserved acceptance by all of the entire Christian faith without forfeiting that accuracy and precision in its presentation which characterized the proceedings of the Council of Trent and the First Vatican Council. And this is what I love. What is needed and what everyone imbued with a truly Christian, Catholic, and apostolic spirit craves today is that this doctrine shall be more widely known, more deeply understood, and more penetrating in its effects on men's moral lives. 
what is needed is that this certain and immutable doctrine to which the faithful owe obedience be studied afresh and reformulated in contemporary terms. For this deposit of faith, or truths which are contained in our time-honored teaching, is one thing. The manner in which these truths are set forth, with their meaning preserved intact, is something else. I mean, what, what, uh, what I see over and over again in the pages of Communio is this idea of setting off the explosive power of holiness. And whether that's reflected through issues and issues on metaphysics, whether that's reflected in the sort of um, retrieving the tradition series that's present there, what's, what's operative here is unfolding what the council means and doesn't mean by the universal call to holiness, which is that the lady can absolutely set the world on fire from the heart of the church. And that's communio, if I could just say that. Very good. Thank you. Yeah, that's really wonderful. Thank, thanks for all, all of you for that. Um, I, anytime I hear von Balthasar, you know, quoted, I, <laughs> I, I think of, of people who, the misunderstandings of him and so forth, and we don't need to get into that here, but I just, I, I encourage so many people as I, over the years, if you have questions about, read him. And the wonderful thing about von Balthasar, to make a quick point here from a perspective of a non-academic is he wrote so many books that are so accessible, which is, I think, really, it's not necessarily totally unique, but somewhat unique among you know, like a great the great theologians, but um, really some wonderful penetrating, accessible. I'm thinking of his his book, you know, for uh, for laymen. I forget the full title of that, but present concerns or whatever it is. But you know, he just very he's very devastating. He's very quotable. Um, you know, maybe more so than maybe De Lubach, uh, <laughs> who I, I consider to be the master of footnotes. I wanted to segue from <laughs> that, those, those. Well, great- now you read read, read De Lubach's. Paradoxes and more paradoxes. So you've got- oh, well, true, and I and I have. Um, sometimes I, in reading De Lubach, I actually learn more in the footnotes than I do from the <laughs> main text. Um, I want to segue from that, and, and what I love about all those answers is there's a deeply Trinitarian, Christocentric focus, which I really always think about when I think about the Communio approach, and then it's always oriented towards entering into the divine life and being. Uh, being made holy and participating uh, in God's divine life in order to be holy. Um, and so I want to segue from that to the the title of this, the conference you're having, uh, Catholicity as Gift and Task. And just kind of an open question, you know, what are some ways in which um, that title, Catholicity as Gift and Task, is going to be articulated? Who are some of the, the folks who are going to be presenting uh, the focus of some of the talks uh, to kind of um, bring that to those who participate. Beautiful. I can lead off if we're going through the roster again. Uh, you know, it's it's been lovely to actually see the response, and and I would love for the listeners and the viewers to to check out uh, the St. Bernard's website. You can sort of see the 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 page for the conference. Catholicity is gift and task. And you can see not only the keynote speakers who are just legends w- with regard to communio, uh, the approach, the communio approach to theology, but also all of the breakout session speakers that we have, because we received such an overwhelming response. It's such a gift to host all these people. Um, and I think w- one of the things that's really interesting so, so, is so Matthew. I'm going to ask you to just tell us a little bit how people can go find that information. Sure. Didn't mean to interrupt you there, but that'd be helpful. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. If you if you Google uh, stbernards.edu as well as Communio Conference, you'll find it pretty quickly. It's up there. Or you can go to stbernards.edu 
And you can go on our website. It's right on the splash page there on the front if you scroll down. So you'll be able to find that pretty easily. You'll find a lot more information about how to register, things like that, the details of the conference. So it's people can actually, descend, can actually descend on Rochester. But if, they, if for some reason, you know, they're not able to fly in that weekend, uh, you, you, people can also participate online. We're trying to add the charm of upstate New York during fall as a, as a sort of uh, attraction to come in person. But yes, indeed, the whole conference, except for the prayer and the meals, will also be able to uh, be seen via Zoom. So that's that's something that we offer as well. Excellent. And the price points reflect the difference in participation. So there is a, a much lesser uh, price point for attending uh, via Zoom. Uh, but, you know, that's, that's a big question that the founders of community have tried to ask is what does Catholicity mean? And, and this is all by way of answering the, the question about the speakers. Uh, one of the things th that Catholicity means, I think, is that they were suggesting that in, in the post-conciliar age, there are just a ton of opinions, of perspectives, of ideas being all thrown together, both within the church and outside the church. And the confusion that results from that when it comes to the faithful is not a situation that they were okay with just leaving be, right? So that's, that's part of the whole purpose of the Communio Journal and the approach is actually to give, as you were saying, Carl, with, with Balthazar's uh, books for just the layman, right? To give some direction to the common person in the pew, right? Someone without a theology degree, what is going on with all of these thoughts and ideas and things like that. And actually Catholicity is directly how they envision uh, the, the sort of hermeneutic for what they're doing there, because they think that the Catholicity of the church means that those in the church have a, a new responsibility for the whole. Isn't that interesting? Because Catholicos, right, means the whole, as it were, or at least with reference to the whole catecholon. And so there's a responsibility for the whole that all Catholics have. And that means even ideas that aren't distinctively theological or philosophical, right? There's a responsibility for the whole of culture as well, all of the things that go into culture. So I think when it comes to that, that's reflected actually in the very speakers that we have. We've got philosophy and theology, as you would expect. We've got a ton of other sort of cultural commentary pieces. We've got uh, a couple pieces on the sex abuse crisis coming in where the church is at right now. We've got um, some sort of political theological pieces, as well as we've even got a paper on communio homiletics, right? So, so sort of aspects of ministry also. So you sort of see that, that, that the very speakers reflect a responsibility for the whole that I think runs throughout all the community of thinkers, as well as the pages of the journal itself. And so let me say one of the ways that we've also reflected that Catholicity is the very internationality of the keynote speakers, um, also at a more basic level, because Catholicity doesn't just mean responsibility for the whole in the sense of ideas and currents and culture, but also the world, right? <laughs> the actual like, geographical extent of the world. And so we have Jean-Luc Marion and Jean Duchesne, two of the founding members of the French uh, edition of Communio, uh, coming to us from Paris. We have uh, Jacques Servet, Father Jacques Servet, Jesuit, who uh, is the rector of the Castle Balthazar in Rome. And then we also have Tracy Rowland coming from Australia. So you sort of have this international presencing. And then we have, of course, members of the editorial board for the American, the English-speaking edition of Communio also. So we have all of those people converging. So the, the sort of unity of the church is here, but in its multiplicity as a gathering of the whole. Excellent. Well, you, 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 as you mentioned, there's a lot that you said there and uh, in, in also in your uh, opening comments that, that bears exploration. Uh, this emphasis on the Second Vatican Council I find interesting. As you know, uh, there's a lot of 
second guessing would be a an understatement. Uh, I don't know how many guessings we are beyond the second guessing at this point, but uh, multiple reconsiderations of the Second Vatican Council. Here we are, you know, post 50 years after the council. And it's still fairly common. Perhaps you could say it's more common today than, than perhaps 10, 20 years ago to hear it said that Vatican II happened. And then in the years after Vatican II, confusion reigned. And the presumption in that kind of description is, first of all, that all we had was confusion in post-conciliar period, which is not accurate. But even to the extent we did have confusion, what's uh, presumed in, in that observation is that not only that the Second Vatican Council is responsible for the confusion, but in the absence of the Second Vatican Council, we would have had a serene church where everything would have been fine. We would have sailed through the 1960s and the 1970s without, you know, a qualm or a concern and the churches would be full and the mission of the church would be thriving. Can you talk a little bit about that? I know it's a counterfactual to kind of go into, but uh, I think it's an interesting thing to explore. How do you see that? And all of you feel free to comment. And in, in light of communio theology, and the uh, the objectives of of those in this approach to theology uh, when they articulate articulated the vision of the Second Vatican Council. Maybe I'll jump in with that. It's a really that's actually a really interesting question, and I think it can be actually answered without um, without polemics, um, but from the heart of theology because. That idea of Catholicity, it isn't just geographical, um, it's also historical, right? And that was one of the, that was something that came out of the council that was so exciting and beautiful for all of us was that this idea of race so small, right? This idea that we have this vast tradition and, um, and theology in particular had gotten stuck in certain ways and wasn't able to go, wasn't going back and really drawing on um, on the fathers of the church, on the saints, on on this this um, incredible richness that we have. And when you go back and do that kind of deep dive into the history of the church, and that's something we've seen in the pages of Communio the whole way through, what you start to realize is that, um, I, I mean, you know, crises are part of uh, are part of the church. We go through moments. There's been a lot of moments in church history that um, that have been challenging, right? So so it gives us a kind of that perspective that comes from history that, okay, you know, we're, we don't want to just stay where we are in kind of our own little bubble here, but see this in a broader sense. But when you start to do that deep dive at the same time, the, res the resources of our own tradition start to speak to our moment. And I think that's one of the things that we really need, um, we need to keep returning to. Um, Balthazar was a great one. You know, I, I, I said this in another interview, I, I got so much out of reading when, what he said about Maximus the Confessor, who, of course, he, he wrote a whole book on Maximus the Confessor on his theology. But Maximus the Confessor lived at a time when um, when orthodoxy was paid for. You know, he, he had his tongue cut out and his hand, hand cut off because he was defending the church. And this was so this is, um, you know, this is a fact that we have to that we are called to live in, in this, you know, way of giving ourselves totally for this truth. Um, and that's a beautiful thing. 
Um, but also it's a fact that, that these, these dynamics come and that what is, what is happening in that moment is a call to us to live in this more intense way. So that brings us back to, to Balthazar's whole theology. You know, a lot of what, um, attracts a lot of people to Balthazar is his intense understanding of what it is to live a life of holiness, right? That it's a, it's a gift of self. It's a total, thrust of yourself into um into this calling that god has given and so in a way that's that that's that's what the moment calls for is this is this this response of ourselves um more than more than just a pure you know talking heads politicizing you and i'm gonna i'm gonna hand this on to danny because he's the he's doing a course on vatican too right now so he's probably really should be correcting us (laughs) all right yeah, I, I suppose just just one main thing to say it's that you know the the way that revelation seems to work is not as it were gradually, but but everything being given all at once, right? The resurrection, the crucifixion, and resurrection were absolutely not understood in the moment, but the whole thing happened, and then we had to kind of deal with it, and that took time, and that time involved misunderstanding, understanding, suffering for the sake of the faith, and so on. And I think from that sort of bird's eye historical perspective, 50 years after an ecumenical council, we're really only apt now for receiving it. Now, that being said, I think, of course, that you can read the pontificates of John Paul II and of Benedict XVI and of Francis as a reception of the council and read those things ecclesially. But a general recognition that, I mean, the sort of density of what's what's dropped when the church issues constitutions and dogmatic constitutions at that is precisely something that has to be unfolded and lived through a few generations until it sort of settles into this sober point of a firmer foundation. Like now these things are turning into bedrock. And I think that's that's partially what's happening. So on the one hand, you can be tremendously discouraged by uh, by all of the lack of clarity and wherever you might be seeing that. Um, but on the other hand, the task of interpretation is just as fresh and perhaps even actually a little bit simpler now because we've seen um, extreme vacillations to either side, right? To, to a rigorous on one side and a laxity on the other. And I think now is the sober point of, what did John Paul II see as the firm thread from Gaudium et Spes 22, Gaudium et Spes 24? How does Pope Francis live that now? And so on. I, I think I think now is the moment for interpretation. And that's sort of uh, a feature of the thing and not a bug. Yeah, if I might say it so generously. That's a generous reading of the state of the church, I suppose. Yeah. Matthew, I'd like to get your uh, comments on that. Yeah, you know, I mean, like, what would be a ressourcement response to this situation? And I guess, I guess, for me, the the, the point would always be uh, to sort of hit on aspects of of Lisa's and Daniel's points. I mean, we have to be reading the conciliar texts. We have to be reading them. This is an ecumenical council of the church, right? I mean, this is the Holy Spirit speaking in our age, in the 20th century, the heart of the 20th century. We need to be reading the text. I think we also need to, in some sense, become friends with. Uh, the saints that were living at that time. So read John the 23rd's opening address that, that Daniel was citing. Read that. I know it's hard to get. I know it's in uh, Bishop Barron's compilation of Vatican II documents. So he, he did a real service by providing that a, on a broader scale, right? But, but read that opening address because it's so insightful hermeneutically to understand what was going on at the time. 
and, and become friends with those who lived through the 50s and had some insight into the crises that were present precisely then. Because we can't just start with the council either. Like it's right. good to know what were some of the crises that were being faced and that Balthazar was identifying in 1952 and raising the bastions, for example. And I really love the argument that many make. Um, I think Larry Chapp makes it uh, somewhat frequently, this notion that, look, uh, the confusion that happened in the post-conciliar age could not have happened, could not have come upon us overnight if there wasn't some crisis happening at the heart of the church prior to the council and even during the, you see what I mean, right? So in some sense, the council can be seen as a very, uh, you know, prophetic act in that sense to sort of respond to a crisis in the midst of it, as it were. So I think the smart response would be to go back, not only just read the texts, but actually get to know the folks that live through it, right? The saints and the doctors that were living at that age, befriend them, get to know their concerns instead of just generalizing and and sort of making totalizing uh, arguments in that sense. Oftentimes when I think about the post-conciliar period and the different reactions to the council, I think the parable of the sower (laughs) and you're looking at what kind of soil uh, we had in the pre-conciliar era, era, you know, towards the end, uh, that that uh, received, as it were, uh, the word and and what happened as a result of that. We had different reactions. Uh, now it, there's a there's a lot of a it's sort of a contest over whether we should have had the council, how to interpret the council, all of that. Uh, but uh, the 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 fundamental question of what was the council about, oftentimes gets obscured and and you get these debates about various fine points of liturgy or 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 whatever but that fundamental uh uh going back to the sources in scripture in um in the liturgy uh in the in the re, re uh, what can I what's the term to use uh, a restored sense of of the spiritual life and the universal call to holiness. Oftentimes, that gets overlooked in the conversation. Anyway, I don't want to dominate. I don't know, Carl, if you want to weigh in here. We we don't want to lose sight of the fact we're also talking about your conference <laughs> and communio, uh, which, by the way, you know, there, there's a little bit of uh, with respect to the journal. It is not unusual to describe it as a sort of a counterbalance, whether that term's a fair one or not, to another theological publication or journal that emerged in the post-conciliar era, Concilia. Can anybody talk a little bit about that? Because that in some ways expresses in, in um, theological journal form this, uh, a significant measure of the, what shall we say, conversation, if not debate in the in, in Vatican II era, and to some extent, it, it remains part of the discussion today. Amen. That's so beautiful. And, you know, and, and I think that's exactly right, that Communio, historically, the circumstances of its founding were such that it, it was in marked distinction to the Concilium Journal, which was founded much earlier as the sort of, as it were, the Journal of Interpretation of the Council. I mean, that was sort of the idea that we can sort right. of keep the parity, the theologians that were at the council, we can keep this brain trust somewhat together and actually allow it to work out the interpretation, the effect, the purposes of the council in the years afterwards. 
Um, so it's really instructive, right? Many, if not most, of the founders and authors in Communio were in some way related to Concilium, you know, many, if not most. And I think with Cardinal Ratzinger, Pope Benedict, you sort of see the shift where, you know, from the moment that he was a founder of Communio, he stopped with Concilium, right? So you sort of see him as this sort of shifting figure at that point. I think I heard that Carl Lehman was the only one who actually sustained both participation in both journals yeah. at the same time for, for years. I think, I think that's, I think that's correct. Of course, De Lubach very early on, you know, he, he was part of that concilium group, but he was concerned and discerned early on a trajectory that would become problematic, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have any comment sure. about that. Exactly. And you know, you know, so what's interesting is I think, I think in terms of my own uh, attempt to like, live the community approach to theology or whatever. I, I try to not so much deny the, the historical reality of the founding of Communio in juxtaposition to Concilium, while also in a certain sense realizing that the mission documents of Communio and what you see in their pages is much larger than sort of the right. fraught relationship with Concilium in the sense that they think, in other words, it seems to me, and I'm sort of putting words in their mouth maybe a little bit, but it seems like they think that the problems that they were seeing in Concilium are actually symptomatic of a larger problem of as it were, right. losing the vision and and uh, the vision of the whole, and frankly the contact with the source, right, the trinitarian source of ecclesial communion. And I think when you lose that, that's when you sort of uh, perhaps the whole can be denigrated into factional sectarian uh, violence, as it were, right, right, to use the, uh, Ratzinger's word, uh, Daniel. And you know, and in that sense. Um, that's perhaps what causes damage, right, to the church uh, and God's little ones, right, in the parishes, in their prayer life, so on and so forth. When the leaders in the church lose the vision of the whole and the contact with the source and the confusion and the sort of uh, factions get sunken down to the level of the parishes and, and the celebration of the liturgy, then you begin to see sort of this, this massive effect and I think that's that's the point is is in a certain sense, um, and this is this is Balthazar in the mission again. He says, Communio does not present the mission the mysteries of our faith as intellectual riddles for specialists. Communio does not treat theology as a purely academic subject. All the Communio wishes to accomplish is merely to help clarify the issues that confront the contemporary Christian by utilizing the shining depths of our common faith and in so doing to counteract widespread feelings of uncertainty. Isn't that beautiful, right? The, the shiny depths, as it were. So, so there, there in in that there is obviously a touch point with respect to fidelity to tradition, all the things that go into uh, you know the controversies of the age and, and, and so on. And on, on on one side of it, on the other side of it, uh, responsiveness to what's going on in the world around us, and so on. But it's it's not a reactionary agenda. Neither in terms of reacting to the modern world or reacting to what uh, the perception of the abandonment of tradition, and so on. That's that's one of the things I love about Communio. Uh, it, it, it is a going back to the sources and renewal and refreshment of the theological spiritual vision. And of course, it's it, because it's a theology journal. It's 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 obviously not written for the average person in the pew, but it it is written in such a way as to eventually have an impact on that. That's what I love about it. Other folks, uh, tell us a little bit more about what you hope to accomplish from this conference with respect to the the journal Communio. 
You know, I'll just I'll just say because I just I really loved your comment just now, um, Matthew. I really think that for us, um, what, what we're talking about right now, this kind of um, communio being formed in this kind of still center, um, it wasn't it wasn't just a reaction, right? It was an attempt to discover um, the heart of theology. Um, it really is something that seems to kind of um, run through our conversations here at St. Bernard's a lot. I think one thing that's really beautiful for us is that we have the opportunity to have this conference and, and um, all three of us have been significantly formed um, by the journal itself, by, by people that write in communio frequently. Um, I was particularly, I was, you know, my theological mentor was David L. Schindler, who is, who has been the editor for years and years. Um, and I, I think that, the, so I think that one aspect of what we want to get out of this conference is just to share, um, a conversation that we have here every day at St. Bernard's, you know, and let that conversation be, be, um, opened up. Um, so that's, that's like, you know, just on the pure personal level and in it, and it, to me, it really tracks with the whole idea of Comunio as the journal was founded. You know, there's, there's these stories about, about these guys just getting together and having conversations at the coffee shop, you know, and Hey, we gotta, we gotta found a journal. And so in a way, I guess like the, you know, that on that purely personal, um, level, but that is the heart of our faith, right? Our faith is a life. We're living in the flesh, right? <laughs> we're living in the real world. And so, um, so I guess in that way, I'm making a theological point, too, is that, you know, we're not that, you know, uh, academic pieces shouldn't be abstractions. They shouldn't be something floating in the ether. Right. They should have a trajectory. They should draw, draw on our experience and they should they should really end up informing our experience. And, you know, here I just think of that, you know, what I think is probably for all of us, the magisterial essay, Theology and Sanctity, that Balthazar had right. in Explorations in Theology, Volume One. I, I and for my paper at the conference, I'm rereading that and working on that because this whole idea of of um, of a unity of life and and um, and knowledge, right? So it's not just the word we're doing something abstract in our little, you know, our little ivy tower, you know, our little conversation which is going on between theologians. But we really want to be drawing on our own lives, and we want what we do to be impacting other people's lives. So it's, you know, our, our goal is not to become theologians as much as saints, you know, and saints as, as Balthazar says, are the real theologians. So I guess I would just say that this is, this is, you know, for us, it's a very exciting thing. I mean, this has been, you know, we just, we just met together at a coffee shop to discuss this interview and and the energy is so palpable. And I hope that that's going to be what we have here. I think it's what we're going to have a birthday party and a super exciting conversation. Good, excellent. Well, I hope you share the cake with everybody. Well, thank you all. Uh, we could talk much at, at much greater length about this, but we want people to actually attend the conference, participate in the conference, read the journal, of course, subscribe to the journal, read it, but also participate in the conference either in person or via the internet. I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Kuhner to give us uh, once again how that can happen uh, before we close out here. stbernards.edu is our website and you'll be able to find us on there. You can also just Google St. Bernard's Communio Conference 2022. By the way, the dates are uh, September 30th to October 2nd, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. We have a keynote presentation every day um, and then we have breakout sessions throughout 
and it will culminate in a panel of all of the keynotes together. So that'll be a really memorable site to have all the keynotes sitting together, responding to one another, as well as questions from, from those that are attending. And it's, it's really worth mentioning that it would not be a conference in celebration of Communio if we did not actually both have Communio with one another. So we have extended spaces between for conversations in hallways, for meal times, for snack times, you know, so on and so forth. Um, there will be cocktail hours as well. But then finally, also communion with the Lord, right? So we have uh, a good bit of prayer. We do candle at Compline uh, every night of the conference, which is a highlight of our academic conferences. People, people have referred to them as intellectual retreats, which is one of the proudest things I think that anyone could say about our conferences. So praise God. But again, it's, it's uh, feel free to jump on our website, check it out. All the information that's necessary is there. And I'd love to uh, send some links along to you, Mark and Carl, to put in the, the show notes or, or whatever else of the various places that this will be posted. Excellent. Well, thank you, Matthew Kuhner, Daniel Drain, and Lisa Lacona. We appreciate you talking about the 50th anniversary of the founding of the journal Comunio, your conference at St. Bernard's, and Comunio Theology in general. And thank you, Carl, for joining me on this. Oh, my pleasure. It's wonderful. Thank you. All right. God bless you. This podcast has been brought to you by Ignatius Press. We encourage you to check out our books and videos at your local Catholic bookstore or wherever else books and videos are sold. You can also sign up to receive special discounts on books and videos at Ignatius.com. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please like the podcast on the website or app from which you listen to it. And please tell your friends about it. I'm Mark Brumley, and on behalf of everyone at Ignatius Press, Thanks for listening.